Hello, my friends. Yes, it has been forever. Welcome to episode 15 of You Don't Know Jack. I am your host, Sarah Dimio, bringing to you everything you need to know in the career of the legend that is Jack Nicholson. Thank you for sticking with me even through my absence. As I'm putting this episode out, it is the holiday season. A lot is going on. Sometimes we have to work extra hours at our other jobs, which doesn't allow us as much time as we'd like to work on the project we'd really like to be working on. But there is a light at that particular tunnel. Last episode, we talked about Jack's directorial debut, the basketball drama Drive, he said. And today we are talking about a starring role for Jack, the infamous, the sultry, 1971's Carnal Knowledge. And today's episode is a very special one because I have my first guest on You Don't Know Jack, my friend, Connecticut Lottery's Mark Negrel. Now, I met Mark a little over a year ago when I worked as a production assistant at Fox 61 in Hartford. Fox 61 is also where they shoot the drawings for the lottery. And I wanted to have Mark be a guest on this episode before the podcast even first began, back when I was still in pre-production mode, months before I recorded the first episode. I was doing the camera for one of the lottery drawings, and Mark was the on-air talent for that day. And there were about four of us in the room at the time, and we were talking, and I started telling everyone how I was going to start doing this podcast, reviewing each of Jack Nicholson's movies, because I've been a fanatic ever since I was a wee baby 12-year-old, and so on and so forth. And Mark chimed in and said, Carnal Knowledge, excellent movie, has one of the greatest scenes ever made in any movie. And a few weeks later, the same people were all in the room, And the subject came up again. And again, Mark says, Carnal Knowledge, great movie. And ever since then, and with Mark having the personality that he does, I was like, okay, I have to have him on. Because I guess I was thinking too, the subject matter of Carnal Knowledge, it's not just about sex. It's more about the complexities of men and women, the sexual tension the relationships, how they perceive each other, how they manipulate each other. So I felt it only right that I have a man come on as my guest for this episode so we could both talk about what this film means to us. I first saw Carnal Knowledge when I was in high school. I want to say I was about 15 at the time. It was one of the long line of Jack movies that I saw after renting it from Blockbuster, a weekly mainstay at the time that I've told you about. I did not find it particularly gratuitous when I saw it, but bear in mind, I saw it around the year 2000, not when it was released back in 1971. This film did a lot of things that had never been seen or heard before in mainstream movies. And that's something that you're going to hear Mark and I talk about in just a minute. The film was directed by Mike Nichols. This would be Jack's first project with Mike Nichols. They would work on three more films together over the course of the next 20 plus years. The script was written by Jules Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer had originally written the script as a stage play, but as the story goes, when he showed the script to Mike Nichols, Nichols told him that it would work much better as a film production. The cast stars Jack as Jonathan, Art Garfunkel as Sandy, though in the film he's credited as Arthur Garfunkel, Candace Bergen as Susan, Anne Margaret as Bobby, Cynthia O'Neill as Cindy. A brief appearance from a very young Carol Kane as Jennifer, and a notable appearance from Rita Moreno as Louise. The film plays out in three acts, and it all begins with Jonathan and Sandy as college roommates having a discussion about what else? Women. 
you had a choice. Yeah. Would you rather love a girl or have her love you? I want it mutual. I mean, if you couldn't have it mutual. I mean, would I rather be the one who loves or is loved? Yeah. It's not that easy a question. I think I'd rather be in love. Me too. I wouldn't want to get hurt, though. You were in love with Gloria. I was starting to be in love with her. And she let me feel her up on the first date. Turned me right off. You kept going with her, though. Well, she let me feel her up. <laughs> yeah, what about Gwen? Her I could talk to. I've never been able to talk to any girl. I was really getting crazy about her. She stuck up. She wouldn't let me lay a hand on her. So I went back to Gloria. <laughs> well, you want perfection. What do you want, wise guy? She just has to be nice, that's all. You wouldn't want her beautiful. She doesn't have to be beautiful. I would like a built though. I want mine sexy looking. I wouldn't want to look like a tramp. Sexy doesn't mean she has to look like a tramp. There's a middle ground, you know? I would want that, yeah. Tall. Very tall. Mm. That would scare me. <laughs> she should be very understanding. We start the same sentences together. Yeah, I like that. Big tits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but still a virgin. I don't care about that. Come on. I wouldn't mind if she was a little ahead of me. Those big tits. Hundreds of different ways. Do you remember when you first saw Carnal Knowledge? I did. I saw it on a VHS tape back in 19... It's got to be somewhere around 1989, 1990. And I had seen many Jack Nicholson movies. And I thought to myself that this was extremely disturbing. And that's what made it so good. Is that this character that Jack Nicholson had was extremely, uh, he was a narcissist, um, extremely self-absorbed, reckless with his friendships. It was, it was everything that makes him a great actor. Do you like that? Yeah. I give her to you. What's wrong? I'm a generous guy. Yeah, I'm grateful. How do I break the news to her? You go over there. Yeah. There's a way to talk to girls, you know. Tell her a joke. What joke? Tell her about your unhappy childhood. That's not bad. But don't make it like an act. No. Go ahead. When we first see uh, Jonathan and Sandy at the college mixer, and we see the character of Susan walk-in that's played by Candace Bergen. Um, she walks past the two of them, and Jonathan looks over at Sandy and says, oh, you like that? Well, you can have her. I'll give her to you. It's sort of the idea of um, women only exist to be at, like an object to have or to give away. That was sort of the difference between the two characters was Sandy was more of a sensitive type, I guess would be the word. He's a gentleman. He just seemed like a gentleman and somebody who was, in, he, he, he liked the idea of a loving relationship. Do you feel her up yet? Come on, I like this girl. I don't want to ruin things. Was I right about kissing her? Listen, we had a big fight over it. And you won. Well, I don't know if I won or not. Why do you let yourself be pushed around? You're the one who's pushing me around. Well, I guess I won. Sure I won. You kissed me five times. Now, that's when you should have put your hand on her tits. Come on, when this girl's nice enough to kiss me, I should do that to her? Act as if she's doing you a favor. Well, it is sort of a favor, isn't it? 
I mean, when a girl lets you kiss her and, you know, go on from there, feel her up and, you know, the rest of it, go all the way and the rest of it. I mean, isn't it a favor? <laughs> What's in it for her? I mean, she's not getting paid or anything. Fuck you. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll feel her up. But then I think that Jack's character becomes envious and that's why as you know Sandy is giving him the play-by-play of every single date that they go on Jonathan is becoming jealous and he says you know what I want that girl too and so he goes goes ahead and asks her out but it's not so much I think that he's looking for a relationship he just he sees that his friend has something so now he wants it too He wants it as well, and, and you know what? It was almost as if I think Jonathan saw Sandy as engaging in something that he was not allowing himself to have. He wasn't. It, it was something that I think he saw as well. He has something that I'll never be able to do. I'll never be able to. Um, have a substantial relationship with a woman like this. So, you know what? I'll destroy it for her. And I think when we saw that next scene where she's on the ground and you don't know who's on top of her, mm-hmm. that's when you realize that this, this, you know, and then he rolls off. It, it put a whole different set of cards in there because he kind of um, put a blemish on Susan. It's like what you just said to sort of put a blemish on her and like sort of the way that um, women were viewed, uh, especially back at that time when the movie is set, when they're in college, it's supposed to be the 1940s. And so um, a woman who was promiscuous was seen as sort of trash and sort of damaged goods and so i think because he was envious he he it's like he wanted to ruin it for sandy a little bit and not feel as envious at that point right yeah he 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 in his own mind he made her just another one of the girls that he thought she could be and no matter what sandy was saying how much he loved her he was always laughing in the background Please, Susan. Sometimes I want to do it, and a second later, I don't want to do it. Well, let's do it. I don't know why you put up with me. I don't think I can do it. It really hurts, Susan. Let me... Not anymore. Please, Sandy. Not anymore. Susan, let's do it. I love you. But I also kind of think that Sandy has what we would refer to today as nice guy syndrome, where it's like he's, he's saying all the right things and he's doing all the right things. Like he waits until the third date to try and kiss her. And then he tries to have sex with her and she doesn't want to but he is he keeps insisting like like come on please and and it's sort of it to me it looks like that kind of um attitude that guys can get sometimes where it's like well i said all the right things it's like you know give me the give me the thing that i earned Exactly. He he felt that it was his right of passage at that point. Definitely. You know every mood of mine like you know every mood of his. No. How come? I don't know. You don't tell me thoughts I never knew I had. Does he say I do that? Yes. Then I guess I must. You do it all right, so do it with me. I can't. You can do it with him. You can do it with me. Now tell me my thoughts. I can't. Why can't you? I can't with you. 
This has gone far enough. I cannot stand any more ultimatums. This is my last one now. Tonight you tell him about us, or tomorrow I tell him. Look at me, Susan. Now tell me my goddamn thoughts. There, there were so many things that I think, so many messages. I think this movie probably, I was, I was way too old. I was way too young at the time to have been in that environment. But I think it, it sent a lot of messages out about the different type of men that we had in our world. For the time, it seemed to be risque, very risque. And, and, and men not being gentlemen weren't really thought of highly. But then when we fade into the next act, we see Bobby, who is played by Anne Margaret, and she's ice skating. Jonathan and Sandy are a little bit older. They've graduated. Jonathan starts describing to Sandy, well, what makes a perfect woman? And in that time, it's like nothing has changed with him. He's, he starts talking about a girl that he dated for two years. And... He was like, oh, you know, her, she had okay tits, but no ass, but she had great legs. And it, it's as if nothing has changed in the years passing between graduating and getting older. He actually seemed angry about it. He actually seemed angry to the point where all he's realizing he has are quests. And I think that was the first part of the movie where I think Sandy seemed to feel pity and disgust for Jonathan. It was was actually like the part of the movie I felt was a crossover. That was a crossover. Jonathan almost seemed disgusted. And then he looks and he sees the ice skater and Margaret and she's perfect. She's the next quest. I'm gonna go through with this, and and he does, even though he's disgusted with the, the way things are going. Sandy sort of, I guess, unsuccessfully tries to talk about uh, his life with Susan because he and Susan are married now. Susan's a very good homemaker, very efficient. I come home, everything's in its place. Which I like, because it's tiring putting in a full day at the office, then doctor's hospital for a couple of hours. So it's nice to have everything in its place when I get home. A martini, dinner, the kids. We don't watch much television. We like to read aloud to each other. We used to have more friends than we do, but we don't have that many anymore. So, on weekends, we might entertain a little or go over to see a friend, come into town, see a play or a good film. It's not glamorous or anything. There are other things besides glamour. And he says, like, oh, you know, we, I'll be working uh, at, at the hospital and... She's a great homemaker, and I come home and everything's in its place. And, you know, we sit down to dinner with the kids. And he's explaining that, but he's not really happy with that married life either. He doesn't sound enthused when he's talking about it. And Jonathan's just kind of looking back at him. And I think he's realized, Sandy is realizing that he's sort of unsuccessfully sort of trying to make married life sound good but even he doesn't really he's sort of also getting to the point where he doesn't think much of it either yes i i I, you know and and it actually feels like this is at the part of the movie where sandy seems to be you know starting to realize that his friendship is with somebody who is extremely flawed I, I don't know. I, that's what I took from it. It, it was just extremely flawed, and and um, he sees Jonathan as being somebody who he, it just appeared from the, these scenes that he he was somebody who was so flawed that he was bad for him. And you see it. You see the relationship progressively get worse from this point in the movie. Um, I think 
so too because it seems like the difference between when they're older when they're talking to each other versus when they were in college uh there there was a great enthusiasm and uh laughing back and forth when they would talk about girls back when they were in college but when they get a little older it's there's no excitement there they're just kind of it's almost like they're talking at each other right right absolutely absolutely they're talking at each other and it it doesn't it doesn't seem fun anymore do you do you agree it just doesn't seem yeah it's like it's not the same type of it, it it I think that's also says something for the privilege of youth too, that they're when they were in college, they were very young and everything was new and girls were this, um, uh, this quest, like this far off thing that, that couldn't be reached. And, you know, but when they become adults, then it's like, okay, well, this is life now. Exactly. The, 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 that period of life and that demeanor that you had during your youth doesn't fit into adulthood. What seemed to be permissible in college was a flaw 10 years from then. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that um, there's a lot of things that when you're in college and you're that age, there's a lot of things that are acceptable and are fun and uh, and are humorous that aren't aren't quite as charming once you get to be uh, 10, 20 years older. I agree with you 100 percent. And you know what? I, I actually think that's one of the part of the mo- that's part of the movie that is the realist. That that was that was real life. That is exactly what almost every single person who goes through that period between 18 and 25 feels. They feel that. And uh, and it was probably one of the, the movies that did it the best. They came out and they pushed that forward into the limelight, where, where it usually isn't seen as well as it was. But that was probably one of the best things about that movie, is that... Jonathan's behave, behavior in college became his character flaw. Oh, exactly. I think so, too, because I think that with Sandy, I think that he always had that goal of uh, wanting to move on to the, something bigger. Like, from the moment he first saw Susan, I, I think S- Sandy has his own set of flaws, too, but I think that he understood that there's... Um, there, there are steps to to reach in life. Like you don't just exactly. you don't just chase after women forever. Like you know, it's you need to get up to that next tier, so to speak. Exactly. You have a long lifeline. I like that. The way you run your nail across my. Uh... Difficult to get along with. Me. Right this minute, anyway. <laughs> you won't stop going after what you want until you get it. Okay, they were they were a great fit for one another because she almost seemed like the same type of person. She really did, and she became. He was he was going after someone. It appeared to me, at least, that he was going after someone who ended up being a lot like himself. Very strong-willed very manipulative and I think that's where he was going in for the ride of his life I think that their relationship took a turn um, when Bobby asked him if he thought it would be a, a good idea if they would shack up and I remember that scene he's getting out of the shower and he just gives a very awkward reply you think it would be a fatal mistake in our lives if we shacked up Very difficult, Bobby. These last couple of weeks, we get along so well together. The idea... I like you very much. 
so much. This idea. To be perfectly honest, I mean, it sounds very good to me. Let's both give it a couple of days to think about it. <clears throat> it sounds like, well, very good. Very, very, uh, well, good. <clears throat> Only our eyes should be open. We should go into this. We should know exactly what we're getting into. This is just a shack of I'm not asking for your hand in marriage. Yeah. Well, as long as we both understand that. I know it. I, and, and exactly. And he becomes a little consumed. And I think his, this is the point where he starts changing his behavior with her because he wants to be a little bit more dominant. That turns around on him. She becomes a little too submissive. I'm hungry. I'll get up. Why do we always have to eat so late? Because I work late, Delvo. Why do you work at all? Brings in extra money. I make enough. You want me to quit working? I thought you were bored with it. I am. So quit. What'll I do? What do other women do? Have children. He had said to her, why do we have to eat so late? And she says, well, because I work late. And then it's that point where he says, well, why do you have to work? I make enough money. But then it, it's clearly not something that she really wants to do, but she does it anyway. Um, and then right. I think it causes her to get start to fall into a depression because uh, shortly after that, we see that there's dishes piling up in the sink and just um, pots and uh, and dirty stuff just sitting on the counter. And I think that's sort of a downward spiral for her. I want to get married. Tired of me, Jonathan? The answer is yes. I didn't say yes. You said, Am I ever? I need more in life than this. Who put you up to this? Your psychiatrist? After a long, exhaustive bed hunt, you finally chosen me. Cindy's not a virgin either. What? Oh, I get it. Is that what brought this on? Your mind is unbelievable. You have to have a low opinion of me, thinking that I would do that to Sandy. Oh, no. You wouldn't want to cheat on Sandy. Oh, now it's Sandy. Oh, he spends half his life over here. Wait a minute. A second ago, you had me screwing Cindy. Who am I screwing now? Sandy? You're going too fast for me. I'm going too fast for you. Your little mind operates like an IBM, like a pinball machine. First Cindy. Oh, no, not Cindy. How about Sandy? How about Cindy and Sandy? Talk about the pot calling the kettle. The day I got an earful of your checkered past, I felt like a celibate. You made me tell you. Sure, I twisted your arm. I got you hot. Something has to. There were, there were certain things within that, within that scene that were so typical of Jonathan. And, and one of the things is, is that as she's going through the dilemma that she's having about herself and not being motivated, he makes it about him. 
Oh, of course. I think that the problem between the two of them is that they're both very self-involved and uh, have these narcissistic tendencies and just uh, an inability to empathize with each other. Exactly. One of the things that was was um, very telling is, you, you know, I thought he would be sympathetic and he, he, he kind of moseyed over of, you know, why don't you try this, why don't you try that? And then he finally exploded. I know I sleep all day. I know I'm doing a terrible job, but you're not helping me any. And who helps me? I help you. Your kind of help I can do without. Can you? Can you really? You'll do anything you can to ruin my day, won't you? I got up today feeling so good. You couldn't leave us alone. We were doing so well. What? At one time, at one time, it was great what we had. The kidding around, it can't have a natural time span. Affairs can't dissolve in a good way. There's always got to be poison. I don't see why. I really don't see why. Jonathan, do you want it over between us? Why does it have to be one way or the other? You don't want me to leave. I want you right here where you belong. What about you? When I'm here, I'm here. When I'm not here, I'm... I'm there. Where? Wherever. No. I'm a man-eater, a ball-buster, and a castrator. I want to get married. All right. Where the fuck is my shoehorn? This place is a mess. There's not any food in the house. Half the time you look like you fell out of bed. You spend more time in bed than any other human being past the age of six months than I ever heard of. The reason I sleep all day is because I can't stand my life. What life? Sleeping all day. <laughs> and also, too, I, there's a real change in, in Bobby, I think, in what she wants. Because um, she says when she first suggests that they move in together... She says, she actually says, I'm just talking about a shack up. I'm not asking for your hand in marriage. But then it's that scene later on where she's sitting on the bed with her head bowed and she says, I want to get married. So something, something changed in her. And I don't know if it was just the not having anything else to do, just being uh, just being stuck in the house all day and sort of the cycle of depression that she was in. But something definitely changed in her and what she wanted. I think from the very scene where they were in the restaurant um, and then taking the cab back home, they were playing a game. They were definitely playing a game with one another and they were talking, you know, they were doing hit and misses and... And it was just a lot of big uh, cliche things that they were saying. So I think it was a game. I think it was a game right up until she realized that a year had gone by, she had become trapped in an unproductive life. And, 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 and when she finally realized what she was doing, she thought that this would end up in the game would be over and I would be married. And it wasn't over. And she wasn't married. And I think that it really speaks to... Uh... It, it's sort of the whole point of the movie as to how w men and women um, sort of relate to each other, sort of the way that I think men and women, when they're young and they're they're brought up, they're sort of taught to expect certain things. Like I think young girls are really encouraged. Uh, you you know you have to get married one day, you have to have kids, you do all these things, and but instead of it's like the, in, in order to make it happen, they have to sort of play the game. They have to sort of, um, you know, have this like almost like a chess move or something to sort of manipulate the, the other, their partner into into doing the thing that they want. Exactly. And I think that it, it, and what really brings this movie so current and it could be current in almost any situation in any, any era, it would be um, that it is that game. It is that game. I think the game has gotten more and more blatant. It's more obvious. I think back in the 40s, 
the 50s, the 60s, the game was still played. But people played it better. Women were submissive. Women didn't uh, complain as much. They played the game. But in the end, I think that there were a lot of um, chess moves, like you said. And uh, a lot of people got what they want by making that chess. What are you trying to do, scare me? I need a life. Get a job! I don't want a job. I want you. I'm taken by me. Get out of the house. Do something useful, goddammit. He wouldn't let me work when I wanted to. That was a year ago. Throw a tantrum every time you call and I'm not home. Look, sister, I'm out there in the jungle. Eight hours a day. You wouldn't even let me canvas for Kennedy. You want a job? I got a job for you. Fix up this pigsty. You get a pretty goddamn good salary for testing out this bed all day. You want an extra $50 a week? Try vacuuming. You want an extra 100 Make this goddamn bed. Try opening some goddamn windows. That's why you can't stand up in here. The goddamn place smells like a coffin. You know, I'm taken by me, goddammit. That was... That's the first thing that came out of his mouth before his explosion. He made it about him, and then he felt comfortable telling her everything else about herself and how she was lazy. And uh, he even made it a point to talk to her about um, how she was a year ago. He said, a year ago, I didn't want you to do that. But today, yeah, today was okay. Now you go get a job. And it, it just shows how their relationship had progressed and how he was over her. You sure know how to screw things up. So where does that leave us? Are you giving me an ultimatum? Is this an ultimatum? Answer me, you ball-busting, castrating son of a cunt bitch. Is this an ultimatum or not? Because if it is, I'm going to tell you what you can do with your ultimatum. I'm going to tell you what you can do with it. You can make this goddamn bed. That's what you can do with it. Try bed cleaning off these filthy sheets. That's what you can do with it. One thing, too, that I think made this movie so controversial at the time is that I think I read that it's the probably the first mainstream movie at least to have the word cunt in it and uh jonathan probably jonathan says it twice actually he uh he says it to bobby he calls her that while they're having yeah. that whole fight and then he says it again while he's talking about one of the women in his slideshow um and so i think that that's not a word uh people uh, really heard in the mainstream, certainly at that time in the early 70s, and there it was. Uh, and that's one of the things that made this movie much more raw and more and just more more real, like we were talking about. Right, right. Yeah, it did. It, that must have been, and I didn't even think about that. That is such a good point, is that there were certain words, phrases that were used that were probably jaw-dropping at the time. They were probably jaw-dropping, and I mean, let's be honest, there was nudity in this. There was nudity beyond anything that had come out before it. Right. The barriers this movie broke down were incredible. Absolutely, and I think that that's one of the things that, I think if, if somebody who had never seen this uh, were watching it today, they, I don't think that they'd be able to fully appreciate how controversial that was at the time. I think, oh, yeah. you know, like all the all the language that's used and uh, the and the the nudity, like we see people having sex and in the shower and things like that. I think that uh, that stuff is, has all gotten to a point. It's pretty commonplace these days, and I don't know that people, unless they had seen it around the time that it came out would be able to fully appreciate what a departure that was for the mainstream movies. I agree. I agree. It was, um, it would probably be very benign in today's standards, but at the time it was something that moved mountains. Just that whole slide presentation, uh, definitely said something about what kind of person Jonathan had become like he had 
had reached such a point of bitterness uh, to, to put the effort into going back to every girl and every woman he had ever been with and put every slide in order and create this, this whole project and have people come in and come over to the apartment and sit and watch this. To put that much effort, it really shows how much bitterness uh, he had gotten just towards women in general. Exactly. He really did. He, he was bitter. And then, as he's going through the slide, it even goes back to middle school. Oh, yeah. Which makes you realize that he was a disturbed person even as a kid. It was, it was, uh, it was one of those uncomfortable things to listen to. But then, then again, that's what made probably that one of his better movies. I mean, I, I loved some of the other ones uh, that he had with Cuckoo's Nest and some some of the more recent ones from the late 80s that he had that were really good um, and as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. But this one right here, I kind of think really allowed him to be, from what I, I've read in the different tabloids, is that he this is almost the type of guy that he was at one point in his life. Yeah, I mean, it definitely appears that way just from stuff that I've seen, too. Like, I think he definitely had that um, persona of being that sort of guy who, you know, just kind of did what he wanted. And, yeah, I think that was very much his his persona for a very long time. It's the most telling in the last scene where uh, he visits uh, Rita Moreno's character, and it seems like the, at first that they're having a, a, a natural conversation until he asks her how much and she says, sky's the limit. And then he jumps up from where he's seated. He's all upset. And he says, no, no, you've never said that before. Why would you say sky's the limit? She says, okay, I'm sorry. What, what did you want me to say? Say a hundred. And so they start over, and it's then where we find out that this is a scripted conversation that supposedly Jonathan has created, because th- this is now, he's reached a point where this is now the only way that he can even get aroused, is to have this scripted conversation yeah. talking about what a what a real man he is, and how he's not like any other any other of those 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 sensitive men he's a real man you sound pretty sure your kind of man why shouldn't i be sure what kind of man am i a real man a kind man i'm not kind I don't mean weak kind the way so many men are. I mean the kindness that comes from enormous strength, from an inner power so strong that every act, no matter what, is more proof of that power. That's what all women resent. That's why they try to cut you down. Because your knowledge of yourself and them is so right, so true, that it exposes the lies which they ever scheming one of them live by it takes a true woman to understand that the purest form of love is to love a man who denies himself to her a man who inspires worship because he has no need for any woman because he has himself and who is better more beautiful more powerful more perfect you're getting hard more strong, more masculine, more extraordinary, more bust. It's rising. I think when I when I found out that you had invited me on this podcast, I looked into the characters and I wanted to see. Like I went into the uh, internet movie database and I took a look at the characters just going through, and then I said to myself, Rita Moreno. 
I took a look at her and I'm saying to myself, where was she in the movie? And I went through the entire movie this last time that I saw it, which was probably a, a, a month or two ago, and I'm looking for her, and I didn't see. And then we got to the very last scene, the scene that you were talking about. I didn't even recognize her. Oh no, she, had she looks been totally a very different. Beautiful actress, but when when she, and in that part, she played a great part. Mm-hmm. And um, you're right. I think it was a part that um, now he was at the point in his life where he was hiring prostitutes to say and do the right things to feed his ego. Yeah, I think it, it really speaks to what, what what everything Jonathan had done and the way that he looked at women and spoke to women his entire life uh, really did not give him any happiness and really is, you know, it was an unrealistic, I think, expectation for him to just always expect women to have the perfect body and have, you know, like perfect, like breast size and a perfect ass, like he says, and that's what a perfect woman should be, but also always want them to be submissive and he's always the one in control. It's just not a realistic expectation. And I think it, I, I, I think it sort of backfired on him in the end. I agree. And it was almost like it was a, a deal breaking fatal mistake when he did say, that's not what you're supposed to say. Sky's the limit. Where did you get that? That was not what you were supposed to say. It killed the moment for him. You realize how um, how egocentric and what a control freak Jonathan was. I thought it was a great movie, honestly. I did. I thought it was a great movie. Not only is this movie a good commentary on relationships, like romantic relationships, but it's a really good commentary on friendships, too. Because I think right. I've certainly had a lot of friendships where it was sort of like, sort of like, uh, I want to call it like the odd couple scenario where the person is almost a total opposite of me. And, and yet we were still uh, had some, something bonded us though. A definite, definite um, learning experience about friendships and how bad friendships could actually get. I think the movie is very much ahead of its time too, because I think these are the types of things you know, with relationships and wanting to get married, not wanting to get married and and sex and just friendships and the things that we do behind friends' backs. These are things that people deal with today. And this movie, Carnal Knowledge, came out in 1971. And I think that I think that it's one of the first mainstream movies to really paint such a realistic picture of just people that way. Right. It really did. Carnal knowledge at the time of its release was a little more than controversial. It talked about sex and relationships in a way that had never been done before in cinema. And naturally, even with changes beginning to happen with community standards, some people just weren't ready for it. In fact, I just read this little piece of trivia from when a theater in Albany, Georgia showed the film. According to Wikipedia, quote, On January 13th, 1972, the local police served a search warrant on the theater and seized the film. In March 1972, the theater manager, Mr. Jenkins, was convicted of the crime distributing obscene material. His conviction was upheld by the Supreme Court of Georgia. On June 24th, 1974, The U.S. Supreme Court found that the state of Georgia had gone too far in classifying material as obscene in view of its prior decision, Miller v. California, and overturned the conviction. 
So as you heard me say to Mark, I think a lot of the imagery and dialogue in carnal knowledge, while controversial at the time, would be considered commonplace today, and quite frankly, even tame by most standards. But see, that's what makes it a cult classic. We've got to appreciate the things that came first that led us to having what we have today. But the thing that I find the most crazy is all the sexual tension in the film, the fighting and the butting of heads between these men and women. These are things we fight with each other about today. And this film was made 50 years ago. When? When are we going to understand each other? So rent carnal knowledge. See if this film makes you feel things. Does it make you feel frustrated at the opposite sex? Or maybe you can relate to these characters. So I want to thank Mark Negrel for his candor and for being the first official guest on You Don't Know Jack. I really hope I can have him on again soon. Next week, we are talking about a lesser known Jack flick, 1971's indie feature, A Safe Place. And yes, I will be back next week, folks. We are back to weekly episodes. No more two-week hiatuses up in here. In the meantime, please join us on social media. You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com and discover other great original podcasts. So until next week, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.